Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Professor Christine Coe from the world-famous Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Christine received her initial degree in molecular biology at Princeton University and medical degree from the New York University School of Medicine. She completed her internship in internal medicine at the University of California in Los Angeles, UCLA, her dermatology residency at the University of California, Irvine, and her dermatopathology fellowship also at UCLA. Her research interests include squamous cell carcinoma and keratoacanthoma, as well as clinicopathologic correlations of skin disease. She's published numerous articles and chapters in dermatology and dermatopathology, and is the creative mind behind dermatology, visual recognition and case reviews, and dermatopathology, diagnosis by first impression. As an authority in dermatology, She's authored chapters on the skin in Goldman Cecil's Medicine, Brenner and Rector's The Kidney, and Brownwall's Heart Disease. She's now a professor of dermatology and pathology at Yale University and sits on multiple editorial boards and is a board member of the American Board of Dermatology. Her first book for the general audience has been published and we'll discuss that later. When not treating patients or pushing the boundaries of medical science, the good professor enjoys spending time with her family and two kids, traveling and reading and writing. Professor Christine Coe, welcome to the EMJ podcast. Thank you so much for the kind introduction and thank you for having me. So you've been educated at some astonishing places. I I was on faculty at UCLA and I always felt like... um, such a fraud being surrounded by people who I deem to be so much smarter than me. I love origin stories, Christine. Tell us what led you to pursue a career in medicine and thence into dermatology and dermatopathology. It's funny. I actually never meant to go into dermatology and I couldn't have even imagined that I would be in dermatopathology, which a lot of people don't necessarily even know exactly what that is in terms of sort of non-medical people. And so I just, I tell them, well, if you've ever had something taken off your skin, um, a skin biopsy, then that's what I do. I look at pieces of skin that have been processed um, medically and look at them under a microscope to make diagnoses. But I didn't imagine, as I said, that I would do dermatology and dermatopathology. And I really wanted to be an internist, sort of a generalist, because I read a biography about Elizabeth Blackwell when I was in fourth grade. And I was just, I thought it was so cool that she was called the first woman doctor and a pioneer in that. And I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like her. So um, I guess uh, times have changed. And a, a number of guests recently have talked about you know, influencers who, who led them down that path. Do, do you think, have times changed in your specialty? I, I know several dermatologists and they're all ladies. Oh, yes. So there is increasingly a female physician predominance in dermatology. I think it's about 70% is currently female. It might be a little bit higher even now. So in terms of incoming residents and trainees, 
they're predominantly women. The vast majority actually is women now. The disparity, I think, still is that in senior leadership positions and sort of senior levels of academia, they're in dermatology, there's still an underrepresentation of women. Well, hopefully we can uh, put that right. So one of your passions, Christine, is to better understand the mechanisms of squamous cell carcinogenesis. And for the, we, we primarily have a medical audience, but we do have some folks who listen in who are not uh, practitioners. So I, I always like to start, you know, sort of uh, um, at ground level, then get into the stratosphere. There are basically, I'm sure there are multiple kinds of skin cancer. The common ones are basal cell, which are very common, rodent ulcers, uh, locally malignant, they, they, they tend not to threaten life, squamous cell, which can, and then of course, melanoma. Tell us about the mechanisms behind squamous cell cancers. How do they develop and well, the floor is yours. Sure. Well, so I think on a ground level, what a lot of people in the lay population, non-medical population understand is that there is definitely a role of sunlight. So just like people understand that in some cases, definitely not all cases, smoking, which is a carcinogen, can lead to lung cancer or throat cancer or oral cancer. Sunlight, ultraviolet light, can cause skin cancer. And ultraviolet light can definitely cause squamous cell carcinoma, as well as basal cell carcinoma and melanoma and other skin cancers, as you mentioned. So sunlight, and what sunlight is doing is it's causing mutations. So a change in our DNA, that genetic code that makes us up. And really, there's a what's called a UV signature, which is kind of cool. So when we look at the genetic code, in a particular skin cancer, especially say compared to you know non-mutated sun-exposed skin of that same patient, there are what are called CC to TT transitions. So that genetic code is changed with this UV signature mutations. And so they're all over. And that is the problem because we actually still don't really know exact drivers like absolutely essential drivers of squamous cell carcinoma because in one tumor, there are just so many mutations. And those are often thought of and called passenger mutations. So for example, we know that certain key genes like the TP53 gene, which makes P53 protein, many are familiar with that, and notch one, two proteins, um, and genes, those are definitely mutated. And so those are probably driver mutations. But, you know, other than that, there's really in one tumor, there can be 1500 plus mutations. And so it's hard to tease out if in one patient's particular tumor, if there's even another gene that's more important than say the TP53 or notch one gene. And it's a little bit unclear. Increasingly as sequencing becomes easier to do with different techniques, we are finding out that maybe there are certain tumoral patterns um, and temporal patterns in a given tumor. So for example, in squamous cell carcinoma, probably, um, you know, TP53 mutations precede notch one or two mutations, whereas say in another very related squamous cell carcinoma in situ, 
notch one or two mutations may precede TP53. So people are starting to tease it out, but we actually don't fully know. Mm. So um, you mentioned sunlight. I've been told by various folks um, that, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll preface this. At medical school, I think I was an okay student, but there was, <laughs> there was one exam that I failed and anyone who's listened to this podcast and I've talked to a dermatologist knows that I've said this. I failed dermatology and I had to do remedial studies over the summer. So um, I'm not the brightest bulb in, in this specialty. But I've been told by various friends that skin cancers are becoming more common. Is it a real effect or is it due to better screening or both? And if real, dare I ask, um, is damage to the ozone layer a culprit? Yes. So skin cancer is becoming more common and, you know, it may be due to the ozone layer. It's a little hard to know. Um, Definitely. I think sun, you know, sun exposure can be a component of skin cancer um, pathogenesis. So that can be related. Human papillomavirus and other chemical carcinogens can also cause skin cancer. So some of that can also be a culprit that viruses are more commonly transmitted. Like say, for example, a human papillomavirus is more um, ubiquitous these days. Although the role for human papillomavirus in certain skin cancers like perigenital or on the digit, for example, that are related to human papillomavirus may actually be decreasing related to HPV vaccination. So certain cancers definitely might be rising and others, even on the skin, you know, particular subtypes might be on the decrease a little bit. But one issue related to skin cancer becoming more common is, as you sort of alluded to, is maybe a false effect due to overdiagnosis. And so overdiagnosis is a concept that's defined as diagnosing something as a cancer when it would not have caused patient death ever. So that is maybe a narrow definition because we know definitely if we catch cancer early, you know, certain deadly cancers like melanoma, for example, and it can be a true melanoma, say we really had a crystal ball and we could see like 50 years in the future and it would have killed the patient, um, but we catch it early, then it won't. So the concept of overdiagnosis is difficult because none of us as human beings have that crystal ball. So I think the question has nuance and it's difficult to answer. I think part of the rise in skin cancer is due to overdiagnosis, but part of it I think is truly real. So, um... Let's move on a little bit. You're, you're involved in transplant dermatology, providing care for patients with organ transplants who are on immunosuppressive medications and therefore are at higher risk for skin cancer. Assume I know nothing, and based on what I told you, there's a pretty good chance that's accurate. And talk us through the risk factors in these patients and what your role involves. I'd frankly never heard of transplant dermatology before and how nuanced immuno. Uh, suppression might be to mitigate such risks. So the floor is yours again. So yeah, transplant dermatology, yes, it's it's okay if you've never heard of it. It just means that I see transplant patients and I focus on skin issues in solid organ, mainly solid organ transplant patients. And 
there is definitely a role of the immune system in controlling homeostasis, you know, just keeping our bodies healthy and free of infection, but also something sort of dangerous to the body like cancer, especially cancer that becomes out of control. So when we place transplant patients on immunosuppressive medicines in order for that transplanted organ to not be rejected by the body, we also lose some of the important functions of the immune system in, for example, in preventing skin cancer from forming and taking hold. So exactly how that is caused is also actually, sadly, not completely known, but we do know certain things like, for example, azathioprine, which is a particular immunosuppressive medication that used to be used more, is now used less for one reason because it is directly mutagenic to DNA. So earlier when I spoke about the CC to TT transitions, that particular ultraviolet light signature mutation that we can see, azathioprine has its own mutation as well, mutation signature. And so that helps create mutations and also kind of promotes ultraviolet mutagenesis. So we don't want that. And so, but you know, some patients, even today, if they can't tolerate other immunosuppressive medicines that are less mutagenic, maybe have to be on azathioprine. So those are sort of the nuances in individual patients and why kind of personalized medicine is so important to sort of tailor treatment and screening and management to each individual and the particular medicines that they're on. Um, talking about education, uh, I mentioned in my introduction that you're uh, involved with the American Board of Dermatology. How's education for the next generation of dermatologists changing? The role of digital medicine, um, digital learning, telemedicine. What are some of the things that occupy you and your fellow board members and, and where's it all going? Yes. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I think people realize that chat GPT just came out and I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play a role. We haven't really thought about that yet, or at least I haven't in terms of actual work with the American Board of Dermatology. But one thing that we've really moved towards in recent years and all of the boards within the U.S. Um, have as well is sort of lifelong learning that is at shorter intervals than it used to be um, sort of, you know, in terms of what the board regulates or mandates or needs to regulate or mandate because lifelong learning shouldn't really be just once every 10 years. And I think most doctors were never doing that. It's not like they wouldn't crack open a book or read a journal or an article unless it was, you know, the ninth or, you know, half a year before recertification. But um, what the program that we currently have is called CertLink. And the way that our American Board of Dermatology structured it thus far is that quarterly you get a certain number of questions. Some are article-based, meaning that recent articles that are deemed to be important and sort of more on the cutting edge of knowledge and things that we would want the diplomats of the American Board of Dermatology to be aware of. There are four questions on 
two different articles like that. So those are article-based questions. And then we have questions on sort of core knowledge, just things that we think that any and every dermatologist should always know. And this program has actually met with a lot of sort of, I would say, maybe even joy in learning and lifelong learning. So I think that's overall been a success. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you for sharing how you first landed in the field of dermatology and for discussing your fascinating research into transplant dermatology. So folks, please join us again next week for part two with Christine, where we discuss her many publications, including her book and the influence of social media on the field of dermatology. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sack here for the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.